Hello, welcome to Texas True Crime. I'm your host, Jessica. I am so glad you are all here with me this morning. Well, I say morning, it's morning for me, but whenever you listen, it could be nighttime, afternoon, but I am glad you're here. I hope everyone had a great week. We had a wonderful Easter. And um, let's just do a little recap since I did leave y'all for a week before we finished up Coral Watts. So remember, they had convicted Coral Watts in Texas, but they were worried that he was going to get out on parole because of the way he had been convicted. Remember, he confessed to killing all of the women, to the 12 women in Texas, but he got immunity for it. So he was really convicted on burglary charges. So we're going to pick up where we left off two weeks ago and finish up and get him convicted in behind bars for good. So like I said, because Watts had been convicted of burglary and not of murder, he fell under Texas's good time law. And what that means is because he wasn't a violent criminal, mm, I mean, come on, he wasn't a violent criminal, that he earned for every day that he behaved and acted good in prison, He it took time off of his sentence. Now, that also meant that instead of doing the full 60 years and keeping him in prison till he was about 80 years old, he could be up for parole in just 20 years. Well, that's not going to do you any good. He's still going to be able-bodied and completely capable of being back out on the streets to do what he's been doing. And remember, he's told everyone that's ever interviewed him, doctors, lawyers, police officers, and everyone else, that if he's out, he's going to kill. So the victims, families, and the public, they were outraged. How could the state of Texas drop the ball like this? I mean, it is bad. Truthfully, I hope that Texas was real embarrassed about all this. So Watts was going to get his first parole hearing in 1990. And then that would make him eligible for release if he got all of his good time credits. He would be eligible for release in 2006. And Harriet Samander was pissed and rightfully so. First of all, everyone knows you don't mess with a mama and her baby. And Coral Watts had already committed the ultimate sin. He had taken her daughter away from her. So there was no way she was going to let him get out and ever see the light of day again. And in fact, it wasn't just Harriet Samander, Elena's mother. It was anyone who had ever had any contact with Coral Watts. They were terrified that he would get out of prison. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, price line. 
Unfortunately, each year that Cora Watts was up for parole, the board denied him. Even the Texas Parole Board realized that there was no way this man should be out on the streets. But the families of his victims started campaigning to have the laws in Texas changed. And in 1992, Andy, I'm not sure how to pronounce his last name. If someone knows, send me an email and let me know because this guy did so much to help the victim, Cora Watts's victims' families. And I looked him up. He's had a very long career of helping families in the city of Houston. And so if I say his name wrong, someone let me know how to do it. Andy Cahan, Cahan, I'm not sure how to say it, but he became the city of Houston's victim advocate liaison. And he immediately began reaching out to the victim's families and working with them to help keep Cora Watts in prison and off the street. And he worked tirelessly. In 2002, Cahan and Harriet Samander worked together to organize a memorial for all of Watts' victims called A Call to Action. It was held at the Greek Orthodox Cathedral in Houston on August 3rd, 2002. Now, it wasn't, so the victims' families were there, and then also he had some surviving victims that made it through his attacks. They were all there. And they got up and they spoke about their family members that Cora Watts had taken away, talked about how wonderful their family members were and how important it was to keep Cora Watts behind bars so that he could not hurt anyone else. But also it was just a time of healing for them to remember their loved ones in a positive way and also for the surviving victims to get up and show that they were okay. They had made it through and that they were not going to let Coral Watts get the better of them. So it was also televised across the U.S. So, and more than 200 people showed up in person for the event as well. So many people were able to see this. And after it was over, many of the family members and surviving victims said they felt a sense of peace being together and sharing their feelings and stories. And it also helped turn the tide on Coral Watts ever becoming a free man again. So one week later, Michigan's Assistant Attorney General Michelle Pendergast was reading the newspaper when she saw an article reporting on the memorial service in Houston. She recognized Watts' name and called Andy Cahan. She told him that she did not know that Coral Watts was going to be released from prison, and she wanted to know what she could do to help. Pendergast and the Michigan State Police... Now remember, Watts is suspected all over Michigan and even into Canada for crimes that they were never able to prove that he committed. So, and remember... There were police officers that were following him in Michigan, convinced that he had killed people, just like Detective Bostock did in Houston. Remember Paul Button, Detective Paul Button put this all in gear 
and chased Cora Watts out of Michigan. So Michigan wants Watts just as bad as Texas does. But you're going to see Michigan saves the day. So Pendergast and the Michigan State Police formed a task force, and its sole mission was to keep Cora Watts behind bars and figure out a way to get him convicted. They began digging into all of their old cases, trying to find evidence against him that could keep him from getting out of jail. Now, Texas also began to try to find a way to keep Watts in prison, even though, and remember, he confessed to killing everyone in Texas, but he only made a deal with Harris County for immunity to his confessions. And so he confessed to killing Emily LaCroix. Remember the 14-year-old girl that was in Brookshire, Texas? But Brookshire, Texas is not in Harris County. It's in Waller County. And so therefore, it was not part of his plea bargain in Harris County. And police were hoping that this would be the loophole that would keep him locked up for good. By March of 2003, the Michigan task force included Ann Arbor, Detroit, Flint, Kalamazoo, Southgate, and Windsor, Ontario, Canada. And the number of cases they were looking at were over 115. All of those cases they believed could possibly be tied to Coral Watts. I still don't know how he isn't as well-known as he is because he is terrifying. And that was just in Michigan and into Canada. That doesn't have anything to do with everything he did in Texas. So on January 15th, 2004, Joseph Foy had just gotten home from work and he was sitting on his couch when the Abrams report came on. He wasn't really paying attention to it. He was unwinding from his day. He didn't really want to watch more news. But a face that had haunted him for 25 years appeared on the screen. And it was the man that he had seen murder Helen Dutcher in the alley behind his house on Bennett Street in Ferndale, Michigan, 25 years ago. So even though Joseph Foy had reported what he saw that night, they had never been able to find Coral Watts and get him convicted. In fact, I don't know, uh, I don't think we talked about this before, but Foy reported her, reported Watts, and reported Helen Dutcher's murder. He even went so far as to sit with a police sketch artist and gave a very good rendering of what Coral Watts looked like. But remember how slippery he was and he disappeared and they were never able to get him. So as soon as Joseph Foy saw Coral Watts' face on the television, he immediately turned the sound up and he heard them say his name. It was the first time he'd ever heard his name, Coral Eugene Watts. Mike Cox, Michigan's attorney general, was on the Abrams report asking for the public's help. Like I told you, at this point, they had a task force and they were full on doing anything they could to figure out how to keep Cora Watts from getting back out on the street. So he was on national news asking for anyone's help that if they knew anything to please come forward. So Joseph Foy called the police immediately. And because like I said, he had reported what he saw back in 1979 and been so helpful 
They considered him a reliable witness. I mean, they had it all on file. He had also then again reported what he knew in 1982 because he had seen news reports about Watts in Houston. But at that time, police in Michigan, they didn't think they needed to do anything about it because Watts confessed to all the murders that he had done in Texas. And I mean, hello, who would ever think that they let a confessed serial killer out of jail? Thanks, Texas. So on March 4th, 2004, Mike Cox, the Michigan Attorney General, remember, he called a press conference and issued a statement that shocked everyone. The state of Michigan was bringing a murder charge against Coral Watts in Ferndale District Court in the Helen Dutcher murder case. Cox stated, This man is a killing machine who has admitted he will kill again. The specter of Watts' release has haunted Michigan families, the nation, and untold victims and their families for far too long. Cox then went on to praise the hard work and countless hours spent by law enforcement to bring Coral Watts to justice. And then he went on to talk about how brave Joseph Foy was for coming forward and that it had been many years ago and it didn't go anywhere, but he had never given up. Now they kept Foy's news name out of the news because they wanted to keep him safe and they didn't want the press after him. So all the families, the families in Michigan and the families in Texas felt a tentative sense of relief, but they weren't going to let their guards down yet until he was convicted and behind bars in Michigan. On April 1st, Michigan Governor Jennifer Granholm sent an official extradition request to Texas Governor Rick Perry, formally demanding Watts be transferred to Michigan to face a jury in the murder of Helen May Dutcher. Granholm announced, Today is the first step in the path to justice for the family of Helen Dutcher. On April 2nd, 2004, a spokesperson for Governor Rick Perry announced that the governor would be signing the paperwork as soon as possible. After the paperwork was signed, then the extradition paperwork would be sent to Watts at the prison in Huntsville, Texas, and he would have a chance to fight the extradition. On April 14, 2004, Watts made his first public appearance in more than two decades. His attorney, Rudolph Brothers, addressed the court. He told Judge William McAdams that Watts had recently undergone major surgery for prostate cancer. He went on to say that Watts would not fight the extradition and was willing to go to Michigan, but would like to finish his cancer treatments before leaving Texas. Judge McAdams granted Watts' request to finish his treatments before being transferred to Michigan. So on Thursday morning, April 22, 2004, Cora Watts was transported by the Michigan State Police Department from the Ellis Unit in Huntsville, Texas to Michigan. He was handed over to Oakland County Sheriff Michael Bouchard. Watts was ready to stand trial for the 1979 murder of Helen May Dutcher. Coral Watts was arraigned by Judge Joseph Longo on April 23, 2004. Since Watts did not have legal representation, Judge Longo entered a plea of not guilty on Watts' behalf. When the Watts then asked Judge Longo for a court-appointed attorney with his head bowed, he never once looked up at the judge. He was quiet, but he was still defiant when he said that his legal papers had been withheld from him. So, Judge Longo appointed him attorney Ronald E. Kaplowitz. He was a very successful attorney in his own right, 
but he did work on the side for the state of Michigan. And he was given the task of representing Cora Watts. Now, his preliminary hearing was scheduled for June 2nd, 2004, so that Kaplovitz could prepare. And Kaplovitz immediately filed a motion that Watts's previous murder confessions could not be held against him as evidence. Now, of course, this upset everyone because his past is so important. It shows what a monster Coral Watts is and what he's been able to get away with for all these years and what he's going to do if he's back out on the streets again. So everyone was so worried that this was going to pass. On the day of the hearing, more than 20 of his victims' surviving family members or their friends were in attendance in that courtroom. Detective Paul Button, remember the officer who started investigating Watts years ago in Michigan and basically scared Coral Watts out of Michigan? He was there. He said that he wished it was his case that they were trying, but he was just glad that Watts was going to face justice. It was ruled that Joseph Foy's memory was good enough for the court and that he was a sound witness, and Coral Eugene Watts would stand trial for the first-degree murder of Helen May Jetcher. June 15, 2004, Watts again entered the courtroom, and his trial date was set for November 8, 2004. Everyone was cautiously optimistic that everything would go according to plan. Two months later, at Coral Watts' pretrial hearing, his attorney argued that his prior murder confessions should not be admissible in court. Judge Kuhn did not agree and ruled that Watts' bad acts would be included in the trial. Everyone was relieved. Now, all of the family members of Watts' victims in Texas and the three survivors from Texas were coming to testify against him as well in Michigan. Now, think about how many people that is, y'all. I mean... If there was ever a group of people who came together to make sure justice was served, it was these people from Texas and Michigan. So on Tuesday, November 9th, 2004, the trial for Coral Watts in Michigan began. Now, here's the thing. This is another reason why I think that Coral Watts kind of got overlooked. There was a lot going on in the media in general. Court TV was supposed to televise his trial. It was supposed to all be televised. But at the same time, Scott Peterson was on trial for murdering his wife, Lacey Peterson. And that was big news too. So, uh, Watts' trial would be televised, but then they'd cut in on top of it. And huge portions of it would be missed because they were reporting on Scott Peterson. So, so much of Coral Watts just got overlooked because of a time frame. And it's really sad because people should know what he did. And, and I don't mean to celebrate him, but to know what all those victims went through and their families and how hard they all worked to keep him where he was. Um, so as prosecutor Donna Pendergast began her opening statements, she let the jury know that the evidence was brutal. 
she warned the jury that they were going to see some of the most gruesome images available. And she said they were going to be shocking. But that was part of why the court wanted them to see them. They wanted them to know just how terrible Coral Watts was. Now, the whole time she spoke, Coral Watts seemed like he was very uncomfortable throughout Pendergast's opening statement. Remember, he usually doesn't show any kind of emotion. But as his bad deeds were brought up, that changed. Throughout her opening statement, and especially as he started, she started to describe the various murders that he had confessed to committing, he twitched his shoulders and his face would jerk involuntarily. And he constantly rubbed his hands over his face. After Pendergast was done, then Watts's attorney, Kaplovitz, got up and he said that by the end, you were going to hate Coral Watts because of all the things you had done, but you still had to listen and ask yourself, did he really kill Helen May Dutcher? Which I know this is going to sound terrible for me to say because everyone in the United States is supposed to get a fair trial, but let's be honest. Even if you didn't think by the end of the trial that he killed Helen May Dutcher, do you really want this guy back out on the streets? And like I said, I know everyone gets legal representation and deserves a fair trial. But I don't know if that was the best defense to put out there. On November 10th, 2004, Joseph Foy took the stand. And it was obvious that he was very uncomfortable, and very nervous. He told the court about how he stepped out into his backyard on the night of Helen May Dutcher's murder because his dog began barking so violently. He said that he saw Coral Watts stab Helen May Dutcher. He said he watched her fall to the ground and he watched Watts walk care casually back to his car like nothing had happened like he hadn't just grabbed a woman stabbed her in the alley and killed someone and he said that as he watched him walk he yelled to his wife to call the police he told the court that as he walked away towards his car watts was also walking straight towards him because of course Watts' attorney tried to say, well, it was dark and it was an alley. How close could you really be? And Foy said, I wasn't that far at all. And he was walking directly to me and not in any hurry. He wasn't running. And he said, he looked directly at me. When he made it to his car, we locked eyes. And he said he would never forget the look in Watts' eyes. He said it was pure evil. They were, it was cold. Without feeling, his look was dark, just so dark. Again, no emotion. So, at that point, they asked Joseph Foy if he could identify the man in the courtroom that day. Coral Watts, at that moment, removed his glasses and glared right at Joseph Foy. 
if looks could kill, Foy would have fallen over right there in court. But Joseph Foy shivered and looked directly at Watts for the first time since his testimony began and pointed straight at Cora Watts. He said that was the man that he saw in the alley murder Helen May Dutcher that night. On November 15th, Julie Sanchez was first up to testify against Watts. She was so nervous about testifying that she even wore a wig to partially disguise herself. And in fact, she had been so scared, they were really concerned that she wouldn't even come to Michigan from Texas. But she did. And in fact, she said that she had lived in fear that long that he would get out of prison. There was no way she was not going to come to do her part to keep him in prison. But she told the jury about the morning of January 17th, 1982. It was already daylight outside. You know, the sun was starting to come up. And she was on the interstate and she pulled over to fix a flat tire on the side of the road. Now, she was one of his victims in Houston that survived. She got the jack out of her trunk. And when she was getting the jack out of her trunk, she saw a man walking up behind her. Now, that alone set off her radar because it's early in the morning. She's on the side of the interstate and a man is walking. You don't usually see that on the side of the interstate. But she thought, even though, like I said, her radar was up, she thought that maybe the man was coming to offer her help. But instead of offering her help, he just walked right by her. So she continued on working on the tire by herself. But then he came up behind her as she was kneeling on the ground and slit her throat twice. He never said a word to her, just walked up, slit her throat from left to right, ear to ear, twice. Then he tried to stab her in the back multiple times. She told the jury how she fought back against him, even though she was in unimaginable pain and thought for sure that she was going to die that day. She kept trying to crawl away from him and then he would keep coming after her. At one point, he even tried to stab her between her legs. Now, just about the time that she thought he was going to kill her, Julie's husband pulled up on the side of the road next to him to help her with her tire. And at that point, Watts got up and ran away. But before he ran completely off, he stopped a little bit away. And remember, it's daylight. She can see his face. She can see everything about him. He turned around, stopped, looked directly at her, smiled, and laughed, and then turned and ran off into the bushes. I mean, what kind of evil is that? She told her husband, as he, he kept asking her, what happened, what happened? And she couldn't talk. She could barely talk. Remember, her throat's been slit twice. She was holding her, holding her hands up against her throat, and she told him, I'm going to die. I'm going to die. I don't think I can make it to the hospital. Stop at a gas station and just call an ambulance. So that's what they did. And she reported him. But yet again, Cora Watts got away. Now remember, Cora Watts had just done all of that 
but he wasn't done for the morning because this is when he went um, to Lori Lister and Melinda Aguilar's apartment. And so next, Lori Lister got up on the stand to testify about how Coral Watts was waiting outside her apartment and grabbed her that same morning, drug her up the stairs, into her apartment, choked her, tied her up, threw her into her bathtub, and almost drowned her if it hadn't been for the bravery of her roommate, Melinda Aguilar, and the neighbor that came up and got her out of that bathtub and performed CPR to get her breathing again. If it weren't for them, she would have died. So she testified against Coral Watts. And then Melinda Aguilar herself, she got up on the stand and testified next about how Watts, she watched Watts drag Lori into their apartment, tie her and Lori both up, throw Melinda into the bedroom, and how she bravely jumped off the second story balcony of their apartment, sustained multiple injuries herself, and ran for help. She also talked about how when Watts was checking back and forth between the bathroom where Lori was and the bedroom where she was, she could see him jumping up and down and clapping his hands with joy while he was attacking them. Detective Doug Bostock then, he's from Houston, remember? He's the one that took up Paul Button's surveillance when Coral got to Texas. He got up on the stand and talked about the day that Watts was captured. Next, Detective Tom Ladd got on the stand. He was also from Houston and read the confessions from Texas to the court in Michigan. So remember, it took Cora Watts over 28 hours to confess and Tom Ladd read every single thing. So everyone in that courtroom that day heard how he confessed with no feeling, no care about killing those women. Then there were a few more officers that also got up and testified against Coral Watts, and then the closing statements began. Now, Pendergast used a projector in her closing statements to show the jury the pictures of all the women that Coral Watts confessed to killing in Michigan. Helen May Dutcher, and then, of course, all 12 of his victims in Texas. And she told them about those women, and she told them about their lives. It was moving. After less than three hours, the jury returned with a verdict of guilty of first-degree premeditated murder. True to form, Coral Watts rolled his eyes and then glared at the families as he was led out of the courtroom. During his sentencing, Judge Kuhn told him that the case cried out for the death penalty, but unfortunately, Michigan didn't allow the death penalty. He followed up with that hell wasn't even a good enough place for Coral Watts to be. I mean, to me, the people in authority over Cora Watts were all so disgusted with him. They couldn't even maintain their composure. They, they all let him know what a terrible person he was. 
So Watts was sentenced to life in prison. Watts died in prison on September 21st, 2007 from prostate cancer. But if you ask me, I really think it was too easy of a death for such an awful person. That's just my thought. Thank you for listening today. I'm glad you were here. Remember to please, wherever you listen to your podcast, get on rate, leave a five-star review because anytime you rate and hit that little button to subscribe, that means every time there's a new episode, it automatically downloads for you. And when you rate and leave a five-star review, it lets other people know that this is a good podcast to listen to. Uh, Tell a friend if you like it. You can find Texas True Crime on Instagram at Texas True Crime Pod, or you can email me at Texas True Crime Podcast at gmail.com. I would love to hear your thoughts on any of the episodes or any ideas you have for other episodes. I'd let me know about it. Um, and have a great rest of the week. I will see you next week. Bye.